0: I have three sons, and sometimes we come to an inevitable point. We have an inevitable wall that we hit, and that is when there is one item or one toy or one book or one show or one thing that they all simultaneously want at the same time. And we have these sometimes arguments over like when you give this to your brother and then like six months later you want it back, what is that? Or when you make these traits that weary parents aren't aware of and then the conditions, in my opinion, you know, don't meet any Geneva Convention (laughs) or like anything just like, wow, that's not, there's no principles there, you're just... You are straight scavenging. You're straight stealing from your brother. That's what you're doing. This trade was (laughs) terrible. But then we get to a point sometimes where they've taken what's not theirs because they didn't take what was theirs earlier. That's a weird place to be. But it's like, no, you were offered this earlier. You didn't take it. You didn't want it. And then it was given to someone else or it's now off the table and you're like, I want that so badly, give it to me, give it to me, and like they want it, and they have that that way, and then, and then your kids grow up, if you have kids, or if you've been a kid, you know that your uh, skills of manipulation grow, right? They're not just simple bald-faced lies anymore straight to your mom or dad, they're like, like little CIA operatives we have in our house, like who are training these kids? Mossad, who are training these kids? Why are they so good at this? How do they get so sneaky? How do they get so deceptive? And then I think about how I grow up and I think how relationships continue and I think about taking from others what we want when we didn't have it earlier, or we refuse it, now we want it, or we use people as stepping stones to get what we do then want, or we use locations or people or current jobs to use as stepping stones to then get to where we want. Now, if any of that resonates a little bit with you, that's where we're at in Judges 18, okay? That's where we're at in Judges 18. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to see it with me. Grab one around you. It's Judges 18. We're walking through the whole chapter. Miss Nally read the first the six verses. We've got 31. So number one, I'm going to give you two headlines through this whole story to try to give you some understanding. Number one headline, intel problem. The tribe of Dan runs a spy operation on the wrong land. That's the headline, all right? Judges 18, verse one. In those days, there was no king in Israel and the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy. Up to that time, no territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent out five brave men among all, five brave men from all their clans, from Zora and Eshtil to scout out the land and explore it. They told them, go and explore the land. Now, to this point, this story sounds a bit familiar. It should, if you know a little bit of the Old Testament or a little bit of this conquest and where these Israelites have been. It sounds very familiar to Numbers 12, whenever the Israelites say, hey, we've got this land, we need scouts. Let's get 12 representatives from our 12 tribes and you're gonna go scout out the land and tell us what it looks like. And this has all been instigated, initiated by the Lord. On the surface, it seems normal, but the issue... The issue is that phrase, up to that time, no territory had been captured. In chapter 134, they failed to capture the land allotted to them. So this whole time, as other tribes have wrestled with that struggle, then sometimes pushed out the enemy, then taken over the land, or at least have some of the land, and then the enemy is still living on the other part of the land. They they made some progress. The Danites have made no progress. They didn't capture their land in 134, and now they're essentially homeless kind of nomads forced into the hill country by the Amorites. That's 134. This is not the land now that they're looking at, that they're scouting, that they're spying for. This is not the land allotted for them. This is unpromised land for them. And without a king to exercise authority and uphold the law, there's no backstop. No one to say, no, 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 don't, you can't do that. So they they go where they want, not where they should. And the interesting thing about the original language in verse one is that territory is not typically what the Hebrews would use for territory. The word in the original language is nahal, which usually is translated inheritance. They are looking for inheritance, even though they have one, but couldn't receive it by faith. Meaning, you'll look for a future, you'll look for wealth, you'll look for a security somewhere if you don't receive one by faith. You'll lust after. You'll seek after, you'll try to find inheritance. There's something wired in you from God by being created in his image that you long for a legacy. You long for something to endure longer than you and and with your kids and your grandkids and the family and and your impact on the society and the world and where you live beyond just you. You'll look You'll look for a future. You'll look for inheritance. You'll look for a wealth in something or somewhere. If you don't receive an inheritance by faith from the Lord. If that's empty, if you don't have that from him, then you don't have an inheritance, then what will you do? Try to make one yourself. Try to conjure up, try to create it. If I can't get it from here then I'll make one for myself and that's what they do we couldn't get the land that the Lord promised and the tribes allotted to us we couldn't overthrow the uh, Amorites they're too hostile and so we're going to take over this land they came to the hill country of Ephraim still in verse 2 as far as the home of Micah and this is where we were at last week chapter 17 and spent the night there while they were near Micah's home they recognized the accent of the young Levite so they went over to him and asked Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is keeping you here? He told them, this is what Micah has done for me. He's hired me and I became his priest. Interesting. (laughs) I use, I mean, you you know that the sarcastic tone is not in the text, right? That's my presumption. But it is used a little bit to make you think, wait, what is that response? Because if the Levite was leading, if the Levite was leading spiritually, he would have not just answered those questions. He would have turned around and asked them those questions. (laughs) Who brought you here? Why are you here? What's keeping you here? And if they would have answered honestly to those questions, he should give them a God-centered rebuke, right? He's a priest. He should be a student of God's word. He should have a heart seeking and loving God. He should be looking to bless others and rebuke them because don't go where Dan sends you. Go where Yahweh sends you. Don't spend the night with this apostate Micah. He should be stoned. That's what this Levi, that's how he's supposed to react in this moment. If he's going to actually be faithful to Yahweh, that's how he should be saying no, no, Yahweh has already sent you to a land. Why has Dan sent you here? No, 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 don't stay with this guy. Don't stay with this guy. He's made his own graven image. He's made his own household gods. He's worshiping Yahweh kind of, but really he's got this syncretistic thing and I'm his own household priest. But to rebuke, to rebuke them would what? have to be rebuke himself because he's making money off of this. We saw that he's just as corrupt as those around him. He would tell them, "Stop scouting for inheritance, Go back and claim the land Yahweh has gave you in his inheritance." If he was a faithful Levite, he would have responded to their questions, like this: "Who brought you here, Micah? Yahweh brought me here. What are you doing here, Micah? I'm teaching and helping this family, this household, in the way of Yahweh." what's keeping here? I'm faithfully fulfilling my charge as a Levite. But that's not his response, is it? No, his response is, Micah has done all kinds of things for me. He's hired me and given me a salary. I've become his priest. Now, this has some insight to think about how we pursue houses, land, how we think about pursue jobs. To so think about what what drives us. C.S. Lewis spoke of men like this as men without chest. And the idea is, and we can just say people, but just the men without chest, the idea is that they maybe have some thinking, maybe they have some reasoning. And maybe they have some desires and some passions, their gut, but they don't have heart. They don't have character. They're men without chest. They're driven by their, just their thoughts are driven by their desires and not driven by love and loving the right things. They're men without chest. And to make decisions based on land houses jobs in that vein is to miss it's probably to miss the heart of god if your decisions and you're driven primarily by your just your thoughts or primarily just by your drives and your passions then you're probably missing what god loves and what God cares about, what God is for. I mean, just because it's an opportunity doesn't mean it's God's. Just because it's a bump up, just because it's a salary increase, just because it's a new role, just because it's more responsibility, doesn't mean it's God's opportunity. That, that's, a, that's a, if you want to talk about Canaanite and syncretism, that is a Christian, Americanized, syncretistic way of thinking of, way, of things. That, that's what success looks like. That that's what this really is. an opportunist, and they respond to it in the same vein. Verse 5, then they said to him, please inquire of God. That's Elohim, to be clear. That's the more general word for God in the Old Testament, not usually, not always particularly the God of the Bible or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the nations around them that spoke this Semitic language would use Elohim to mean any God. But they say, please inquire of God for us to determine if if we will have a successful journey. And the priest told them, this is quick, go in peace. The Lord, not Elohim, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of our fathers, the God who's promised this, us this land. The Lord Yahweh is watching over the journey you are going on. Now that's interesting, right? Go in peace. That, that, that sounds positive, but, but the second phrase is not necessarily positive. It literally means the Lord is watching over the journey you're going on or the 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 watchful eye of the Lord is on you. The watchful eye of the Lord is on you. It could mean the approval of the watchful eye as in he's watching and he's like, go for it. It could also mean the opposite. If you're a dad, I think you know that. Like you've looked at your kids in two different ways of like, yeah, that's great. And then. I'm watching you. Don't do it. This is a terrible choice. You know, like, it's too different. It could be either or. We don't know. They interpret it positively. They're like, yeah, let's go, right? Go in peace. He's watching over us. Yeehaw. Verse 7. The five men left and came to Laish. They saw that the people were living securely in the same way as the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. There was nothing lacking in the land and no oppressive ruler. They were far from the Sidonians, having no alliance with anyone. When the men went back to the relatives at Zorah and Eshtel, their relatives asked them, what did you find out? They answered, come on, let's attack them. <laughs> what did you find out? Let's attack. For we have seen the land and it's very good. Why wait? Don't hesitate to go and invade and take possession of the land. When you get there, you'll come to an unsuspecting people in a spacious land. For God has handed it over to you. It is a place where nothing, that's Elohim again, just to be clear, for God has handed it over to you. It is a place where nothing on earth is lacking. So he says, behold, this is their report, behold, the land's very good. It's very beautiful. The people are unsuspecting and secure. There's plenty of room and there's plenty of resources. Now, that's a good argument. How they they report this is in good argumentative fashion because it's in contrast to their current living situation. The current living situation, not very beautiful, not very spacious, Uh, harassed by the hostile Amorites, not very resources because of that. So they're like, yes, let's do this, let's do this. God has handed it over to you. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's plentiful. These people won't even be able to defend themselves. Clearly, God has given this to us. Do you hear what I said last week? It's kind of the idea of like two Christians dating, and then they pray about the relationship. Good, but then they have sex outside of marriage. Ir- irrelevant. What? Like, just because you felt peace? from God after you prayed and then you go on disobeying. It's the same thing here. Wait, wait. You you can say God has handed this over to them, but he's not. This is not their land. This is not theirs. This has been trusted, promised, allotted to them. That's the setup. This all comes back to Micah. And the, the progression here is what I've told you last week is, is this, this is just ordinary Israelite lives, right? We're not talking about the judges anymore. All the stories of 12 judges are over. Now we're just gonna get in snippets of ordinary lives of Israelites and what it looked like during the, the era of the judges, the governors. And this is the headline of this last big section, the rest of the chapter, a fraud priest, a false god, in a fake land. It's really sad, because this has progressed from just this little family, Micah and his household, to now, this is the whole tribe. We saw two weeks ago, how bad was it, that the judge himself has been corrupted and just looks like the Canaanites and the peoples around them. Do, does it doesn't look like Yahweh. Does it doesn't look like, Gracious and merciful and strong and courageous. Verse eleven. Six hundred Danites departed from Zora and Eshtol. Six hundred that's a low number. If if you've been with judges, you know that usually they start with big numbers and they get whittled down to numbers in this size. This means that, that probably they the tribe didn't really respond. They, they weren't sold. It doesn't seem like all of them were sold on this report. 600 of them were. 600, they depart, armed with weapons of war. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place is still called the Camp of Dan today. It is west of Kiriath-Jerim. From there, they traveled to the hill country of Ephraim and arrived at Micah's house. The five men who had gone to scout out the land of Laish told their brothers, Did you know that there are an ephod, household gods, and a carved image and a silver idol in these houses. Now think about what you should do. I think some of your translators say, you know what you should do, right? Go get it. Like, I told you, all all of his most valuable things, right? (laughs) You get it. Feel this. 600... Danite men were standing by the entrance of the city gate where Mike and the priest live, okay? Armed with their weapons of war. Then the five men who had gone out to scout out the land went in and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol while the priest was standing by the entrance of the city gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. So he's standing there, one priest, for this whole household and then 600 men show up and then five of them start walking into his temple his his place of worship where he he ministers right <laughs> and they just start stealing everything when they entered Micah's house and took the carved image of the ephod the household idols and the silver idol the priest said to them what are you doing Probably was like this, what are you doing? There's 600 men, right? I, I don't know how ever you felt in a schoolyard when there's been like three bullies versus you. If there's 600 versus me, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a little timid. i am be a little unsure. Like, hey guys, wh- wh- what's happening over here? Try to be as gentle as possible, as soft as possible, as like non-confrontational as possible. What are you doing? They told him, be quiet, keep your mouth shut. Come with us and be a father and a priest to us. It is better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest for a tribe and family in Israel. So the priest was pleased and took the ephod, household idols, and carved image and went with the people. They prepared to leave, putting their dependents, livestock, and possessions in front of them that's strategic. And so they bully, blackmail, bribe the priest. And then tell him shut up and be our father. And he's like <laughs> yeah, can I talk now? No. Okay. Just I'll be a mime. I'm, I'll be your mime priest for the rest of the time. But shut up. It literally means just put your mouth, hand over your mouth. Stop talking. Don't ask us what we're doing. Okay? shuts him down as a priest while they're stealing his stuff but then comes back and counters that shut up you want to work for us <laughs> yeah yeah I do I do but do you see the progression now oh the stepping stone you, 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 you were just a priest with this little family you, you want to be that for the rest of your life what kind of inheritance do you want their inheritance is wacky. Now they're coming to him and and now proposing a wacky inheritance for him, a wrong inheritance for him. And he's pleased with it. He's excited. For me, this feels so uh, relevant 20 years ago to when I was in Baba College and uh, growing with some guys and like getting into vocational ministry and seeing the the kind of dynamics of I mean this this feels this feels my opinion. This feels like a corporate ladder. But it's like a corporate ladder that's been painted red to look Jesus y. But like the stepping stone mentality of like I'll be a youth minister so that I can be I'll serve these people for a little bit so that I can be. And just that stepping stone mentality feels so gross to me. But you feel it here with him. This is maybe the first one that we see on record. Just, no, I'm going to, I'll just be here. And even how he got to this space is so weird, so wrong. Of how he's left his home and just traveled to just be a household priest. And we're going to get to the point at the end of the story that that is supposed to shock us. This whole time, there's been a place of worship instituted by God in Shiloh. Meaning, they weren't just on their own. It wasn't just a a vacuous hole that they're filling with something. They're, They're saying, no, that's not enough. I like my own temple at my own house with my own priest where I have some sort of control to manipulate the deity so I'm actually in charge, not the God I worship. And if you're like, I don't know about stepping stones in ministry. Well, you know about stepping stones. You do. Stepping on one job to get to another. Stepping on one relationship to get to another. Stepping on one role to get to another. What about the current stone? What about the current stone? So preoccupied with getting to the next when we don't serve where we are. It's the the inheritance, that's the legacy of this priest. So using this moment or this people or this resource to get to the next We're so forward thinking that we're not actually present with where God has placed us now. To be faithful now. You see that success for him? This is success. I was just working in a small thing with a small wage. Now I'm going to have a bigger job with a bigger clan with probably a bigger salary and more responsibility, more honor, more people to look up at me. What about the current stone? What about being faithful in the little things? What about being faithful in the little things? The focus, when Jesus talks about that, the focus is not even on getting bigger things. The focus is, if even that is the case, be faithful in the little things. Now, some of us are like, but... But Jesus said, if you be faithful in the little things, then then you'll get more responsive. Maybe maybe you'll get to grow into something else. But but this guy's not he's not faithful and he gets more. He gets more. How is that possible? Well, again, again, just because it's what looks successful doesn't mean it's been stamped by God. Just because you're advancing, just because you're getting a better job, just because you're getting more money, just because you're stepping into whatever you think is success, because you're reaching it, doesn't mean you have reached it righteously or that this is under the approving, watchful eye of the Lord. Success in your life, how you determine it, doesn't mean God is saying approved. How you get there. How you do it, how you conduct yourselves, how you honor the God you worship while you're in the midst of it, all matters. That, that's why we can have so completely different jobs, and some of us can judge them on menial tasks or how we think about if they matter or not. And, and to God, that, that doesn't, that's inconsequential because so much of what matters is how you do your work, not even really what you do in your work. That you can do this to the glory of God if you pick up garbage cans, if you if you uh, engineer something and make it, if you write out stuff, if if you clean up after kids, if you change diapers, that there's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God that this is a better job than this one. The, the hierarchy is really how are you doing your job to the glory of the king or to the glory of yourself. What about the current stone? What about being faithful in the little things? For him, at least, he wouldn't be here in the first place, and if he was, he would rebuke these men not joined in their apostasy. Verse 22. After they were some distance from Micah's house, the men who were in the house near it were mustered, <laughs> and caught up with the Danites. They called to the Danites who turned to face them and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you mustered the men? I'm sorry, Jude, yeah. Me and my son love puns, so he's up here giggling. <laughs> what's the matter with you that you catch up the men? Right, Jude? What's the matter with you that you mustered the men? He said, you took the gods I made in priest." and the priest, and went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, what's the matter with me? Then, then i said to him, <laughs> these guys, man. I, I just, can you be honest? These, these aren't Christian-like, right? And if you're like, well, this is preachers. Okay, they're not godly-like. It's not merciful, gracious. This is brutal and irritable and angry and violent. Vengeful. Don't raise your voice against us, or angry men will attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Someone coming to your house, bullying you, overwhelming you, but in a soft way where they don't even touch you. You just stand there, they steal the most valuable things in your home, they leave you finally realize what just happened. You gather your friends, you chase them down, and they're like, what's wrong with you? Don't raise your voice against us. You have men, we have angry men who will make this happen. They go on their way, and what does Micah do? He turns and goes back home. Because he saw that they were stronger than he was, Now, what Isaiah and what the irony of the story will tell us is that the gods made with human hands cannot defend themselves. They can't defend themselves from being stolen, and they can't defend their makers. You feel the irony, the, the, the twist there? This little God can't even save himself from being stolen by another clan. And this little image, this little God can't even deal with or come to the aid of Micah. Isaiah 40, 18 says this With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metalworker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. You're left with the hollowness there, the emptiness of what these idols, these images claim this idea of trying to reshape God into whatever you like and, and shave off the things we don't like about him and shape him more into our image and what we like about him than what we don't like. All of that is insanity. He says, you're going to compare that to the living God? You're going to compare... Something a smelter casts and a metal worker a metalworker plates. You're going to compare that to the lion of Judah. Now, verse 27. This is how it finishes. After had taken the gods, Mike had made and the priests that belonged to him, they went to Laish to, to a quiet and unsuspecting people. They killed them with. They killed them there. They killed them with their swords and burned the city. There was no one to rescue them because it was far from Sidon and they had no alliance with anyone. It was in a valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the name of their ancestor, Dan, who was born to Israel. The city was formerly named Laish. The Danites set up the carved images for themselves. And here's the M. Night Shyamalan twist. Jonathan, son of Gershon, son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he had made and was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. you see the twist? This Levite that we've been talking about this whole time that has kind of been nameless where at first, if you're reading it, you think this is just to generalize and say like this is kind of the state of all Levites and maybe that's the case, but by the end, it's this is a direct descendant of Moses, maybe a great-grandson. This is the Levite. What, what Don Carson used to say is that when one, generation believes and agrees with the gospel, but then with their kids, they lead them to just assume it. They don't make it explicit. Then the third generation underneath us, our grandkids reject it, neglect it, don't even think about it. And this this seems to be the flow here. Moses, (laughs) the friend of God, God revealed his secrets to Moses. That's a friendship. Now his grandson, great-grandson descendant is is the Levite for hire, mean, this family's fake priests and now the Dan's, the Dan tribes, the Danites. They're shameless in their worship. They're shameless in their conduct. They want to get their way. Told you, just because they're success, it doesn't mean you're doing what's right or godly. It may be the opposite. God God doesn't stifle every corrupt thought and scheme of the human heart. What's really telling us that this clan looks like a Canaanite tribe. It it would it would be like us looking and acting like a mall or a country club or a terrorism like looking something completely different than who we're supposed to be looking like a a different group of people that worships a different god that has different habits and practices and beliefs and that that's what's happening here this this clan the Danite like the whole clan this whole tribe looks like a Canaanite tribe not like an Israelite tribe what we said last week in Romans 1 they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they've exchange worshiping the creator for worshiping creation. I mean, if you don't believe me, this is they're just like the Canaanites. They've reduced deity to graven images, physical images. They've manipulated God to private ends, to financial ends, to personal gain. They've appropriated the pagan cult installations. They're doing just like the Canaanites, their whole cultic worship, it, it you know, it doesn't look like the temple, it doesn't look like it's a counterfeit of the temple really, but It's not. It's not pure. It's not genuine. It's not Yahwistic faithfulness. And then they're also brutalizing each other in the process. And with that idea that even the priest, the descendant of Moses, has been corrupted. One one commentary commentator says it this way: the cult is syncretic, syncretistic. The priesthood is mercenary and the devotees are evil. The cult is syncretistic, meaning it's just a mix of different faiths and religions. The priesthood's mercenary; they're just for hire. Whoever's got the bigger bank, they'll go there. And the devotees are evil. The truth is, self-made religion will disappoint in the end, no matter what. No matter if it's feeling good for 10 years or 20, or if it fails immediately, it's going to disappoint in the end. Whatever we make into a God that's not God will eventually disappoint you. If you make your career your God, you will eventually find your your route to being blessed. By someone who's too strong, too able, too well connected, too lucky for you. There's someone who's gonna route you out, someone who's gonna take that job, someone's gonna get that place. The person who makes image their God will find time and enemy too strong that that age is coming, no matter what you do. And gravity is not relenting. The decades as the decades go on ultimately, death removes all the false gods we look to. But with Micah, you get an opportunity like him. You don't have to go that and die that way. You get an opportunity to not continue that way. Micah has it ripped from him, and at least He doesn't die there and die at the foot of his false little image shaped in the version of God he likes himself rather than who God really is. He doesn't die there. He actually has an opportunity to respond to God and and repent and to grow and, and to go to Shiloh. He does. The truth is, so do you. The truth is, this makes it very clean, clear from Scripture you are not worshiping sometimes and not worshiping sometimes. You're always a worshiper. And the question is, who or what are you worshiping? And if it's a false god, if it's with a fake priest, if it's with, for a false inheritance, then, then you'll be disappointed now or in the future. And so then it can be ripped from you or you can turn from it. That idol can be ripped from you or you can turn from it. I'd rather turn from it and gracious. uh, I'd rather turn from it and just open-handedly give it to the Lord. At this stage in my life. I've had it ripped out a few times. At this point in my life, I'd rather just turn to him and open-handedly give it to him. And turn to Him, and not continue that path. Now, repentance for some of you—it's—it's—it may just be a little course correction, but some of you, it's like you're—you're. You're You're head deep like these guys are in in a completely different life and thinking and worship. And it's a little bit of Jesus, but it's a lot of this and this and this. And it's a a buffet of spirituality that you've created for yourself because it's palatable. You can digest it. But if you can't digest it, you don't need grace. You need a God that's so big that you can't digest. So you need his grace to you so you can even comprehend, relate to him someone bigger than you that is actually worthy of worship. Someone that can't control be controlled and manipulated by you who's <laughs> actually worthy of worship. I'm going to pray. Father. I ask for turning for the grace of your spirit to reveal where we're more like Jonathan and Micah and the Danites than we'd like to realize and where you, you would cut to our heart especially if we're just people walking around with no chest no character just driven by our desires, and then Father I I thank you that. later, descendant of Moses wasn't corrupted. And a brother among us rose up like Moses. And he was pure and holy and righteous. So, Father, lead our eyes to gaze upon that king, that savior, that judge, that deliverer your Son, King Jesus. Amen.